Good day there, guys. Welcome to the Blowing Cartridges podcast. I am one of your hosts, Zach Clark, and as always, joined by my lovely co-host, Brendan Tam. Brendan, how are you doing on this fine day? Yeah, I'm doing really well, Zach. It's always great to record a podcast, and uh, I'm very excited this week because the topic is we're talking about the great 1983 hit single from the police, King of Pain. I I think it's a great topic. What do you think? Uh, I I don't know how to break this to you, Brendan, but I think you might have, like, were you wearing your glasses when you read read the show notes today? Because I think you might have read it a little bit wrong. What? I, I thought we have Sting on the line from the police. No, no, no. We've no. we got someone else on the line who's does not Sting and not, I, I don't think he's from the police or any sort of band. Um, special guest, uh, do you want to introduce yourself and, and clarify for Brendan what we're actually here to talk about today? <laughs> Hello everyone, it's me, I'm, I'm Mess, or Mess would like to fall out to my full name, but Mess is just easier to say. I'm some guy who worked on a game called Ring of Pain, not Risk of Rain, or King of Pain, was it? <laughs> but yeah, I'm one of the... Two programmers at Twice Different, a fairly new video game company based in Melbourne, Australia. How's it going? Well, I'm curious how Brendan's going now that he's he's had his, his the letdown of finding out what we're actually talking about, or or, or maybe the excitement. I don't know. I don't know how he's going to react to this. Well, it's a bit of both because it is a bit of a letdown because, well, great song, great band, of course, King of Pain and the Police, but. It's always great to talk to Aussie game developers and because I think it's a really vibrant scene at the moment, especially the indie Australian game development scene. And there's been some brilliant games over the past few years. Like we've had Hollow Knight, we've had Android, Android Assault Cactus, Golf Story, to just name a few. So it's always great to find, discover and play new ones. Yeah, hundred percent. And uh, Ring of Pain is is a good new one that's just launched uh, at the time of recording, about a bit over a week ago. Uh, at the time this goes up, it's a bit over two weeks ago. You know, on PC, Switch. I'm gonna throw it a mess. If you want to plug other systems, that's the only two I I'm aware of. And Mac. Ah, <laughs> oh, there we go. Well, Mac, PC, and 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 Nintendo Switch. But before we get into the game and what the game is, I'd like to. You know, give you mess a bit of an opportunity to talk a bit more about yourself. Uh, you know what? You know, let's start with where it all began. What? Where did you start? You know, as a, as a gamer, and what sort of inspired your interest in in video games? Oh, where it all began? Oh, well, we're voodoo Vince. Voodoo Vince. Back in the day, no. When I well, when I was a young lad, I was just walking in in the house, and my dad was like, "Hey, mess," and I was like, "Ah!" And then he threw a Game Boy Advance SP Blue Edition at my head. And um, wow. <laughs> I've been playing ever since. Actually, it's it's a. I still have that Game Boy. <laughs> the traumatic event of getting hit by a Game Boy just you know stuck with you. Exactly, and ever since then, it's like a curse. <laughs> I hope you caught it. I no, I caught it with my head. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I've been a gamer, as they say. I've been playing games ever since I was a young lad. Love them, love them to death. Love them too much, in fact. It's it's almost a problem. <laughs> well, I mean, you turned it into a career, I suppose, so it's not that big of a problem. <laughs> I guess um, so. <laughs> which is always good, which is probably leads you to a, a sort of second question. When do you reckon, or how do you reckon you determined, you know, I want to actually make video games? Because obviously, Brendan and I here, we love video games, 
neither of us are making games um, at the moment. So there must have been something that triggered in your life or in your world that sort of put you on that path. Yeah, it, it's sort of weird. It's in my human nature to give back in a sense. And I've been playing a lot of games. I'd love to give back to the community by making fun and interactive experiences for all. And um, I guess that's what strives me. To get to this position, it was it was a bit tricky because uh, to get into game development, it's a, it's a pretty rough market to get into. And it's, uh, it's very difficult in Melbourne to get a job in video gaming. And it's interesting because when I finished high school, I was talking to my careers council and I asked them, oh, I want to get into games. What's the best way to get into it? And I guess the jobs counselor just had no idea of the topic and he's like, ah, don't worry about games. <laughs> <laughs> Go into something more general like programming and perhaps you'll land your way there. And at the time, uh, I think the Australian government defunded games. Like there was a big defunding in games. And I guess I was like, well, games are dead. It's time for programming. <laughs> so I went to university for programming and I got a software engineering job. I became a research assistant and yeah, I've been working there for a while. And one day I just applied and I got the job and here I am. Wow. That's, um, it's quite a, uh, it's, uh, I, I don't know if lucky is the right word, but it sounds like it worked out pretty, pretty well, <laughs> all things considered. Um, yeah, well, it's, as I said, it's pretty tough to get a job and I've been applying for two years. It's kind of funny. Uh, I was reminded a few weeks ago about the exact timeline of how I got this job in particular. And it was very strange. Um, I went to PAX Australia 2019 and I saw the game there and I, I thought it was fun. The game has been in development for about two or three years or so now and it was showcased at PAX last year. I wasn't hired by Twice Different at the time, but I visited their booth, played the game, had lots of fun. They also had an orchestra a PAX live orchestra. I'm not sure if you went to that, but they also played one of the tracks from Ranga Pain there. And I'm like, hmm, this game, this game is pretty good. They, 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 they might do really well. And later on, like a month later, I, I went to Sydney for a weekend just to see the Kingdom Hearts World of Tress Orchestra. Yeah, I went to another state just to see a video game orchestra. That's okay. We've, we, we've all done this we, before. We've this. all been there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> And I was just, I stayed up one night in the Airbnb room and I was just applying for jobs as usual. And on the last day of the Sydney trip, I got an interview and it was just very surreal. Like in that short span of time, so many things happened. And uh, I went to the interview the week later and I was super nervous, praying not to blow it. I was just being myself, talking about games, having a laugh, getting along with the other team members. And yeah, I left feeling re relieved, but still shaken up. And a week or so later, I got the job. It was so surreal. Like when I read that email, I, I was walking in the middle of the road and I just stopped. <laughs> I stopped and I read it three times. Uh, don't worry, like there was construction on the road, so there were no cars. But... <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> but I was so relieved to get the opportunity to work in the field that I've always wanted to, my dream job. And... Yeah, I haven't looked back since. I'm very glad to be in this position. Yeah, that's um well that's that's a great story. And I mean it's something, you know, 
you know, I, I've only known you for, oh, it's probably, I want to say a couple of years, but it's probably like five or six, <laughs> six years now. Um, cause, <laughs> yeah. cause I, both you and Brendan actually came in sort of to the same university that I was in and, um, both ended up being sort of part of, I guess, what I'd call the next generation of the, the video games club there. Uh, after I sort of left, obviously met you guys through that. And, um, it's good to see, you know, people from, from that space, uh, who worked, I think, really hard at, you know, in that time running a, a video games club out of passion and love for this medium, this art form. Now sort of seeing that pay off in, in their careers or, or finding sort of their way into the industry. Um, and I, I would imagine that same passion you had back then has sort of carried you through into this job, I suppose. And that probably really shone in the, in the interview, I imagine, which would have helped you get you where you are today. Yeah, exactly. It's 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 very interesting. Uh, I assumed you've talked about the video game club prior. Not really yet, actually. Not not a ton, but I mean, yeah, we we've all involved in a committee of a, a video games club at the university we went to, um, where you know it was basically weekly running gaming sessions. Yeah, gaming much. sessions, tournaments, um, trivia nights, you know that kind of stuff, um, and sort of building a little community around that. Um, and I was president for uh, a, a about in 2012 uh, and then a few years after um you guys <laughs> came onto the scene <laughs> and mess at some point i don't know what year because i'm bad at remembering but you were president as well if i recall correctly 2016 yeah. it would have been was it oh my god yeah, so long ago <laughs> 2016 to 17 the, the glory years mess yeah the, the best year yeah see was the point in my life where i Realized I was way into games more than the average person. Uh, <laughs> I was way too passionate. And yeah, so at this uh, video game club, I just sort of stumbled my way into it. I There was a election and I applied and I somehow got it. I became the tagging and testing officer, which was basically a filler role. And from <laughs> then on, I developed my social skills. And I went from like an awkward person to becoming the president and just communicating with sponsors to other people. And then the following year, I became the treasurer. I've basically been part of this club for my entire uni school life. And it was fun. Uh, I I managed to host a few VR sessions back when HTC Vives and Oculus Rifts were only available in the US. It was really hard to acquire them. And we've had a bunch of trivia nights. It was just a good, good time. It, it really harnessed my love for video games even more. And to be with a community just for games, just so good. Easily the highlight of my uh, uni. So I guess in the end, the careers advisor wasn't all that wrong, were they? I know, it's very <laughs> weird. Like Before I became a video game developer, I tell people that my careers advisor said, oh, go into programming, it's, it's probably better. And they're like, ah, oh, no, I shouldn't have listened to them. But yeah, I guess he was right. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting. I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if he was very insightful. I'm not sure if he actually knew what he was talking about, but it worked out. <laughs> yeah, out of interest, now that you've sort of started in game development, is there anything? I don't know. Do you feel like your programming uh, degree and then I guess your work in the, in the programming field before joining? Um, uh, twice. I'm going to stuff this up. Twice. What's the developer's name? Uh-huh. Twice. Different. Different. I was going to say twice likely. And I'm like, that's a K-pop You were close. <laughs> close. <laughs> it's, almost, um, it's like almost the opposite, but... <laughs> yeah, um, twice different. Uh, 
do you feel like you there's a difference in what you know and what you can do to the sum that may have gone into like an RMIT, you know, game development or design course or or don't really know based on your experience? Yeah, so it's really interesting. I so just to clarify a bit more, I had two jobs. I was working two jobs part-time basically uh for about a year or two uh before becoming a video game developer and I was a software engineer at a live streaming company and I would be in charge of developing websites and server maintenance and security chat functionality, a whole bunch of things. And then at the research assistant job, I was a computer interaction researcher assistant. (laughs) So I would be making basically anything that people can interact with as part of their research project. And that might include making games for orangutans, orangutans, <laughs> orangutans. Wow. How, how do you how do you say that? Ar- 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 <laughs> yeah. Orangutans. Yeah, and I've been developing software solutions for AR, VR, motion tracking, and object scanning. Like all four of those things combined, I made VR chat for the elderly, which was <laughs> very interesting. It's not what you may think it is. It, the main idea was to make it accessible for them as possible, and to make them feel comfortable talking to other elderly people. And probably the largest project I worked on, it eventually became more of a proof of concept than an actual finished thing because I unfortunately left before I could complete it. But it was the ability to have a virtual conference with another person in augmented reality by showing their physical body live as a point cloud. You can kind of think of it like a Star Wars Leia transmission with R2-D2. <laughs> yeah, I can picture it. So I basically made a solution that used the magically or the Microsoft Polarons to see the other person live. And these experiences were all made with Unity, and Ring of Pain is made in Unity. So that sort of worked out. And as for my software engineering job, part of Ring of Pain involved creating a Twitch extension, which I will talk about more later. But the entire ecosystem to make a Twitch extension involves so many moving parts. You need servers, you need databases, you need to create a client-side website, essentially. You need to integrate it with the game. And if I did not have that experience as a software engineer, I would have stumbled. It would have taken much, much longer to implement all of that. Uh, so I'm actually glad I worked at both of those positions. They They really powered me through in my video game development skills. That does mean I'm lacking in more of the sort of game designy skills, if that makes sense. I'm very I'm very fixed and very creative in terms of creating software solutions, but in terms of the game feel, I have a bit to develop on there on that side. Yeah, so would it be fair to say if someone gives you a problem, you can come up with a creative solution, but if someone said, I don't know, like make a make a level, that's probably where you you might struggle a bit more. Exactly. That that's exactly it. Uh, and I can I could potentially make a level from experience, but I wouldn't know the process that is taught at these schools like RMIT, as you said. Yeah, it's it's a very different set of skills. But I guess in a way, it's similar to what game design used to be like in the eighties and nineties, where it was a lot of people in their spare time, people in their basements making games and shipping them on a local level. They didn't really go to uni or have any background in what's good game design or the like they'd 
very much designed based on, well, it's fun. Let's go with that. So in a way, it's it's similar to that in many ways. Yeah, it is. It's it's pretty interesting to put it like that. I feel like I feel like recruiters for video game companies, they're looking for all sorts of different things. And it does help if you did a video game course. But for example, I remember I applied for Bethesda in the US and they said, you must have three years of software engineering experience. It wasn't specifically for games. It was just general experience. So if you were a student who did a video game course, you may not specifically have software engineering experience. You will have game development experience, which may be different from what they want. Perhaps that job was for a server or something. I'm not too sure, but there are different fields to work in a video game studio. Yeah, so I was recently reading Jason Schreier's Blood, Sweat and Pixels, great book talking about game development, and I he was interviewing Obsidian about Pillars of Eternity, and they mentioned in that that they brought a few people onto their team that didn't know game design. I think one was for narrative and another one was some design role, and the people in those roles said, yeah, they they struggled a bit because they didn't understand game development as a process, but they brought other things to the table as well, so... I think it does show that game development has become very, I guess, multidisciplinary in a way that they're open to a lot of people from different backgrounds as long as you have some sort of cogent-related skill, which I think is a very good thing. Yeah, it definitely is. We have different fields, a lot of different fields when making a video game, some that you may not even think about. For Ring of Pain, if the team was pressed for time and we were all busy, we would contract someone to do a very specific task. For example, we had a person come in and help reinforce and polish our UI for the game. And they stuck around for two weeks. They were an expert at their field and they did their job really well. And we would have someone else come in for audio, for music, for game design even. So for people to be specialized in different fields, it's it's really a good thing. It may be hard to find a, a long-lasting job at a company, but in terms of contract work, I think it's I think it's going well. So it makes me think of how you always hear like you know Blizzard hiring like economists to to help adjust <laughs> to how that sort of functions. Like a job that you don't normally associate with games, being an economist, but you know sometimes they, you need those sort of otherworldly experiences, or even like you know, but uh, getting botanists to help design plants or that kind of stuff in a game. But I mean, yours sounds a bit more direct. Like, it's if you told me a programmer worked on a video game, it would not shock me <laughs> that that was a um, or a software engineer. But before we keep talking about you and your experience developing the game, we probably should explain what Ring of Pain is uh, to our audience. So, do you want to give us a quick pitch mess, and then you know, Brendan and I can probably contribute a bit because we've both been playing it a little bit in the last uh, week and a half. Okay, so Ring of Pain is a roguelike card crawler where encounters come to you that's basically the slogan (laughs) but essentially it's a dungeon crawler where creatures items and whatever you can find in a dungeon is visualized as a ring of cards and it's not a typical card game per se it's not like you have a deck and you play cards it's just the way that the game is structured and it's a difficult strategy game that has lots of roguelite elements yeah it's pretty tough to play <laughs> i just before we released i managed to finish the game without cheating for once 
and it was quite the accomplishment, I must say. <laughs> yeah, I have to admit, I have played it a little bit, and I am not close to finishing it. <laughs> I have to say, when I played it, probably if I was to try and draw an analogy to something or um, connect it to another game, it's, it sort of felt a bit like playing Reigns, if any, either of you have played Reigns, where it's like you're sort of picking, like, you know, do I fight the monster on the left or the monster on the right? Or, you know, take the item on the right or fight the monster on the left uh, or exit this door, uh, which I think is a good way of sort of thinking how the gameplay works, where you're right, it's not about cards. It's not like playing Hearthstone or Slay the Spire or anything like that. It's it's really more, you've sort of got usually a one direct decision over the other. Sometimes there might be a third option depending on what items you have, but it's really just those moment-to-moment decisions about which was going to lead me further through this dungeon that I've sort of, you know, feel is how it sort of plays. Yeah, exactly. It's it's very, it's strategic and also situational. And to reinforce this idea, we added a mode called Daily Dungeon, where we've, we have a set of levels and a few modifiers, and those modifiers will make the game very difficult. But there will pretty much always be a way to beat the level. And we have a leaderboard to show who could beat the level the best. We have a point system as well for that. And in a way, it almost becomes a puzzle game. Yeah, I noticed that. Because in the daily dungeons, a number of the factors are predetermined in them, aren't they? Yes, they are. Everything is preceded. So if you were to do the same action, and then you restart the game, and do that same action again, and repeatedly, it'll always result in the same outcome. So there will be a path for you to beat the level. In a way, if you sort of remember the specific sequence, it's almost like one of those old DOS games that you would play, like you would type up, move left, move right, attack this. And there would be a specific sequence that you would need to do. However, the main game is more situational. You create the situations by doing actions prior. For example, if there is an exploder that is running towards you, charging for you, and you ignore it, eventually it's going to reach you. And typically, the beginner player would just ignore it and not know what's going on. However, experienced players will see that charging exploder coming for them, and they'll just move out the way. Yes, or or line it up with another exploder car to get a chain reaction or tactics like that. Exactly, yeah. There are many different things you can do, and part of the fun of the game is that we have a very large set of items that you can equip, and there are some synergizing items as well. For example, an exploder might heal you. An exploder might shuffle all the cards in the ring. And it creates a more unique playthrough every time you play the game. I guess that's what creates the sensation that some playthroughs you'll get on a real streak and you'll be feeling really good about it. Oh, I've got a great selection of cards. Everything's going my way. And then other ones, they'll be very short playthroughs because, oh, I made a lot of mistakes. Oh, oh, this setup I have isn't very ideal. I'm not going to get very far. Yeah, there are times that I like that as well. But I think what really benefits the game is that it is so pick up and play and it's so repeatable in that it's very, well, I'm not that great at it. I think the, the furthest I got was about three quarters of the way around the ring, but it's very quick to do a playthrough and start another one. It's very much a one more try sort of game in my experience. Exactly. It's it's really, really addictive in a way. It's released on the Switch, and I find myself picking up the Switch and walking with the game, trying to beat a level. 
And, well, when currently there are COVID restrictions at the moment, but when those lift, I'd love to be playing this on the train, just on the way to work. Maybe not, maybe not playing my my game, because then I might get over it, but <laughs> it's the type of game that you would play over and over again. And yeah, it's structure. I almost foresee it as becoming a mobile game in the future, perhaps. But you're not officially announcing that, or are you? Have we got the exclusive? <laughs> oh, 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 no, no. I mean, we've stated before, we're looking into it, but it's we need to see more success with the game for us to do that because we need a budget, we need money to fund all the programmers and all of that. We're just a small indie company. Yeah, unfortunately, there's no Switch you can pull and it's ported to all these different consoles. I wish. Part of that is the case. Because we're using Unity and it's uh, you can export a game to many different platforms. However, there are the little things that are issues like load times, making sure the game runs smoothly, saving, cloud saves, achievements, uh, the Play Store or the, the Apple Store. And there are more and more complicated things that a typical player doesn't think about that the programmers have to now implement just to make sure they have a nice experience. And also... Touchscreen, how does that work for this sort of game? It's easy to say that you can just tap on what you want to do, but part of the game is being informed of your decisions. If you're playing on PC, you can hover over an option and it will give you a tooltip on some more details. Or if you're playing off a controller, there's a way to do that as well. It's a bit more difficult on mobile because the only input you have is tap and maybe hold or slide. Yeah, that's interesting. Like, I hadn't even thought about, like, that benefit of just hovering the mouse um, or the, the cursor on, on Switch over something to see that, yeah, that pop-up. Yeah, you'd, you'd almost have to change, yeah, right, tap, and then maybe it comes up. But, yeah, it's a completely different way of, of, of inputting it. So that's interesting. I hadn't even thought of those little challenges myself to moving it to mobile. So that's that's fascinating to hear. I've experimented with porting it to mobile. It does work at a basic level. I've played it on my phone. But I do run into those issues of, we used to have this feature, but now we don't. How do we implement this? And it's a different way of thinking. I've also tried playing the game in VR. And <laughs> and in my mind, it was like, oh, you can reach out and you can touch the cards. But that doesn't quite work. You're not going to be doing that. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting thinking about user experience and user interaction when it comes to different platforms. So if I... Sort of extrapolate on what your experiences were before Ringer Pain and now, considering you've experimented it with VR, would it be safe to assume you're going to make like a HoloLens style like card game where it's like, <laughs> it's almost like Yu Gi Oh! where the monsters and stuff are going to pop up and it's going to be targeted at the elderly? Is that correct? <laughs> <laughs> I wish. And orangutans as well. <laughs> exactly. Got to give those orangutans jewel discs. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, no, I, I wish that was the case. Maybe if uh, Magic Leap or Microsoft sponsored us, <laughs> uh, the offer's on the table, then maybe we might consider it. I have to say, though, I wouldn't imagine the elderly would cope fairly well with this game, because to me, I'm curious if this is intentional. It it definitely has a creepy vibe, right? Like, I wouldn't call this a horror game necessarily, but it has, I would say, the trappings of, like, horror kind of elements particularly with i don't know if he's the mascot but the the owl or the bird that's giving us sort of rhymes all the time he's, he's a creepy dude oh the owl the rhyming owl yeah best character lots of fun he's great big fan yeah yeah oh i love it when people try to describe the owl some people say a chicken some people <laughs> say 
If one person said a rabbit, yeah. my favorite is uh, either the Duolingo bird or Big Bird. <laughs> Those are easily my favorite. I definitely see the parallels with the Duolingo bird. As for the art style, yes, it is very creepy. While I'm not the creative director, I joined development for this game. Later on, well, as it was well in development, the creative director, Simon, who's also the artist, he made a very cutesy fun game a bit prior, and he is like, alright, I've had enough, I need to make a creepier game, so <laughs> that was definitely a part of why this game is creepy. And as for the art style, I believe it's inspired by Aphantasia, which is the term given to how people visualize thoughts and ideas in their mind. So if you were to imagine an apple in your mind right now, what does it look like? Is there an outline? Does it have color? How much detail does it have? And for Simon, the way that he sees things in his mind, it's almost a mishmash of features with streaks of color. And he managed to visualize that really well in this game. And it's, it's a very striking art style, I must say. It's really, it's what got me interested into the game when I saw it at PAX. It's very visually striking. And definitely the owl. The owl's very creepy. Love the owl. <laughs> I find the void thing much more creepier. Ah, uh, the void. <laughs> yeah. The, I think the official term for it is the shadow. I'm not quite too sure. But the community calls it different things, like the voice or the void, and it's really cool. I, I like I like reading people's responses and how they interpret and see the game, because the game isn't a dry cut narrative. It gives you story points very periodically, somewhat similar to Dark Souls in a sense, where you might talk to a character every hour or so, and they'll give you a tiny bit of information, and you sort of piece together this lore and story. And to see people on our Discord just talk about the law is very interesting. I'm a big fan of games that manage to do that successfully. That they There's a story there, but it's very much there if you want to find it, if you want to pass through it. But you can easily experience a game. You can easily enjoy the game without giving a thought to the narrative or the story or the law behind it. Exactly. I'm so glad I don't have to sit down and like spam A talking to different characters. Especially when testing the game, you're going to be playing the game a lot. I've played the game so many times, I, I can't even give you a number. It's really high. The game does have that almost speedrun technique where uh, the dialogue is very short and you can easily skip it. It's sort of easy just to keep sort of like having that one more shot and also at the same time you're picking up those bits and pieces Um particularly, again, from our uh, favourite, uh, Al, <laughs> um, <laughs> and trying to decipher those rhymes, which uh, give me massive Gruntilda vibes. Um, so that's why I think I love him so much. Now that the game is out, which I wouldn't say means it's, well, maybe you can tell us, but I wouldn't say it means it's done, done, but you, it, it's finished for the most part. I'm just kind of keen to hear your thoughts on what that experience is like. Uh, I mean, obviously, you weren't there from day one with Ring of Pain, um, but you've been there for a, a while. So how does it feel to go through your first sort of commercial release of a of a product that's that's now out there or a game that's now out there? I'm looking at my notes right now, just in case of this question. <laughs> just in case if this question was asked and it just says, I'm tired. <laughs> <laughs> uh, aptly put. Yeah. <laughs> so it's interesting. When I joined, I was like, yeah, games. Woo, I'm going to program this thing. And <laughs> oh, got this feature implemented, yeah. And then it just became, oh, yeah, 
yeah, gonna release this game, gonna fix all these bugs. And it, I feel like that feeling could have been much worse if we didn't do a closed beta. So we have a very, I'd say it's a fairly active Discord community. And initially we posted a short demo there, exclusive to Discord. And we got some feedback, lots, lots of bug reports, and we fixed it. And then eventually for the people who communicated the most on the Discord, we gave them access to a closed beta, which, or, which pretty much had most of the game included. And that's when all of the bug reports started to flow in. <laughs> and towards release, I'd say the last two months or so, it was just continuous bug fixing. We might add a little feature here or there, but we just wanted to get the final product as polished as possible. And in addition, because we released for the Switch, it does take a while for it to get certified and for it to be published. There's lots of different steps that a game needs to go through to be on the store. And what that meant for us was that we had to make sure that this game was bug-free, wouldn't cause crashes, add like random points. And well, we the game's on Switch, so we, we must have done well there. Yeah, so for the last two months or so, it's just bug fixes again and again. So now that the game is finally released, the amount of players that were playing the game went from maybe 50 or so to a thousand plus easily. And it's good to know that there aren't many game breaking bugs. There were certainly some, but they were very rare. And we immediately fixed that and patched it and shipped it. Unfortunately for the Switch, however, it does take a while to release updates for the Switch. So it's a bit frustrating almost. We want to update the Switch as soon as possible. But Nintendo's process, it takes a while to upload and get these updates verified. So it, it's taking a bit longer for the Switch because we want to bundle all of these updates and all these bug fixes together in one big go so we don't have to go through that process as much. But now that it's shipped, I'm relieved. I, I've, I've been watching a lot of Twitch streams, people playing the game, and people using the Twitch extension that I developed. It, it's, it's really good. It's, I'm very relieved. Can you explain to us a bit more like what a, the Twitch extension does? Because I think that's probably one of the most interesting... I mean, there's lots of interesting things about the game, but that to me is one of the most interesting features that you're starting to see in other games, but it's definitely not commonplace yet i would say it was put to us that a lot of people are going to be playing this game on twitch and having a twitch extension would increase viewers interactivity with the game and they'll feel more engaged which is certainly the case and there have been twitch extensions in the past for example uh dead cells that was it dead cells has an integration with their game and it's a little window that pops off on the side of the screen of the video and you could input some commands. And in the last, uh, a little while, a little bit before release, I started researching into what could be in a Twitch extension, and I found out you can do a lot more. And so we got to brainstorming, and we came to the conclusion of a few features that we wanted to implement. We couldn't implement them all. Hopefully more will come in the future. But basically, the Twitch extension allows viewers on Twitch to vote when a choice appears on the screen. So in the game we have chests and when you open them they provide you with 
two choices, along with discarding both and re-rolling to get even more choices. And what the broadcaster can do is click on a button, start vote, and then votes will start to stream in from the community. Uh, and you will see what the community, what the viewership wants the broadcaster to pick up and whether that's a bad thing or a good thing, whether that's up to the community to decide. And that was a fairly, fairly stock example of a feature for a Twitch extension. The more interesting one that I had, we spent a lot of time polishing and getting it just right is the ability to draw creatures in the game. So Ring of Pain, it's a ring of cards with creatures on them. And we now gave access to Twitch chat to essentially draw a creature that could be in the game. And you can imagine that could that could result in many funny things. People could draw like a can of Pringles. Not that we're sponsored by Pringles or anything, but a can of Pringles uh, could now be an exploder. And then suddenly the broadcaster will be surrounded by cans of Pringles and they'll be like, oh no, <laughs> what am I going to do? Or they could perhaps draw one of the channel's emotes or they could draw a meme. It's it's very interesting to see what the community has come up with. Definitely, I think it was probably on launch day, saw um, some tweets or whatever with uh, Sanic. Oh my god. The, the meme was uh, <laughs> quite prevalent using that feature. <laughs> that video made me laugh so much. I'm so glad that it worked. So for this feature to work, it's required a lot of programming and a lot of little services talking to each other. I was mentioning it before, but we have like a web API, we have a server to process functionality, a database, and then we have another database for images. And then we have communication between Twitch and the game and Twitch and the viewer. And there were many, many moving parts to get this thing working. And it took a few tries to get right, especially before we shipped it. We we did some private experiments on what would work, what would work. And we found issues like, oh, if anyone can just draw a drawing, how can we make sure that they're not uh, inappropriate material? Like, <laughs> well, maybe I shouldn't list them. But... I think we all know what we're going to say. Yeah. <laughs> so we added a feature for moderators to approve those drawings. And yeah, it's it's very interesting. For a Twitch extension to be approved, you need it needs to be reviewed by Twitch themselves. So... Uh, during the review process, we had to be there on the other side streaming the game, and they had to be using the extension. And we were just kind of biting our teeth. Please approve this. Please, please approve this. Because <laughs> no other extension, as far as I know, lets you draw and it to be in the game itself. And I'm glad that it was approved and verified. So we got that out uh, into the world. As for that Sanic <laughs> tweet you were talking about, that day was, I think that was the first day of release. It was very surreal to, one, first of all, see a person on Twitch playing the game I've been working on for the past year. And it was surreal seeing them use this extension that I've cried over. I haven't cried, but <laughs> inside I've cried. <laughs> and the Twitch extension was in beta at the time because it hasn't actually been tested outside of our dev team. Oh, wow. Yeah, because we just released the game, we didn't we couldn't reach out in time uh, to other broadcasters to test it. So I just found some random dude. He's a pretty cool guy. I actually like him now. Uh, I didn't <laughs> know him before. I mean, not that I didn't like him before. Like, I've been following him. Uh, and I managed to convince him 
to go through all the steps to get the extension working. Like we had a Steam beta branch, we had to enable up enable all these options. You had to install it on Twitch. And at the time, we didn't have a guide. I just had to explain it to him uh, <laughs> through the chat as it was being drowned out, which is really funny. And then people were repeating what I was saying. <laughs> and they clicked the button, they started the game, and bum, bum, it didn't work. And I was just on the other side like, ah, oh, crap. <laughs> I got this guy to go through all of these steps to install this thing that doesn't work. So I was like in tech support mode. I I messaged them and I'm like, okay, just play the game normally. I'll look into it. And I was stressing out. I was I was so stressed because not only the the, the baby that I made doesn't work. I went through all this effort <laughs> to get this person to try it out, and I was really struggling. I, I had to basically reverse engineer what I wrote to see what was happening, and. I brute forced a bunch of ideas to get it to work. And I think eventually at some point I got it. Oh, great. And then I implemented it and I pushed it. And then I tried locally and it still didn't work. (laughs) And I did that about five times. I pushed an update to a server live five times while the streamer was playing the game. And on the fifth try, it worked. And I was like, go, go, go. It works. It works. And... The stream at the time just finished their run and they're like, all right, let's give it a go. And it worked. And I was so relieved. I got to witness the extension, the extension working. And I watched the entire stream laughing, enjoying my time while stressing out looking at the server load because that's another aspect. And it was very, very rewarding to see the vote system work where you can see how many people have voted and you can just see the number tick up and up. And I'm like, yes, all of these people are using the extension. These aren't just numbers. These are people. <laughs> and uh, the first drawing ever seen, I, I don't think the the broadcaster knew that you could draw creatures. He just sort of enabled the extension and was like, all right, let's do it. But when he saw the first drawing, he just paused and was like, hold on, wait a second. <laughs> are you telling me that you could draw creatures? And it, it was it was really funny. I was just sitting there laughing, clipping, and sharing it to the team. Uh, and yeah, and eventually someone drew Sanic <laughs> and then clipped it. And that's probably what you saw. <laughs> Meanwhile, on the other side, I was like freaking out and <laughs> making sure everything was working. That's more to the story than I expected when I brought up the Sanic thing. But that's, I mean, that's super cool. And I think that's an interesting way to see how, in many ways, live streaming uh, and Twitch, I guess, in particular, is changing the, the way games can be developed, not only, obviously, through your extension, but just that exchange you just talked about, about, like, live updating the game based on something you saw didn't work on a stream. That's that's fascinating to, to sort of see that level of, I guess, f- feedback to, to getting a result um, on your end. Uh, I imagine also helps that on the PC version, you, you can push updates a lot quicker than uh, the Switches you were talking about before. But that's yeah, fascinating to see because I guess you almost get your own little QA testers and you know through Twitch streams where you can actually watch the footage and see how things broke and actually try and as you said reverse engineer how um, what caused it. So that's really cool to sort of hear that 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 story. Really fascinating. Yeah, it, <laughs> there was a moment of fear because to push the game to Steam takes a while, or to get the extension approved takes a while because. We live in Melbourne, and they live in the US, and we have to schedule a time when they're active to get the extension reviewed. So luckily, 
the issue with the extension was something that I could just hotfix and patch and release instantly. And I'm very glad that was the case because I think Simon was uh, sharing the fact that we have a Twitch extension to other broadcasters. And meanwhile, I was like, oh, no, it might not work. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. Yeah, so there was that moment of fear, definitely. And I think there was a point when there was a streamer. uh, I think they were a Korean streamer and they were using the extension. And they had about 14 or 15,000 views or so. And it was just horrifying because they were using this extension that I wrote. And when they did a vote and I saw the numbers, the people voting increase rapidly, just it went from zero and shot up to like, I don't remember the exact exact number, but it might've been 800 or so. I was freaking out because a thousand people like clicking a button at the same time for a server. That's insane. That's, that's a lot of processing that it needs to do. And I'm just glad that the program that I wrote can handle it. And uh, it scaled accordingly. So we're using a very, uh, I guess this is a bit technical, but we're using an approach where if a lot of people are sending requests, submitting requests, more servers sort of spawn in the cloud. Like there's a, there's a sort of doc- door knocking effect. Like, hey, wake up, wake up. We need to process this right now. And the amount of servers ramps up accordingly and handles all those processes. And then eventually when the stream ends, it ramps down and all those servers say, good night, and then they turn off. And ultimately what that means is we pay less money. But it also means that we don't need to worry about if there's increased load. So that 14k stream, that happened overnight when I was sleeping and I watched a rerun of it. If if I saw that live, if I saw that 800 vote number live, I would have had a heart attack. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that's when I knew at that point, like, all right, it's done. I can stop stressing about it. If it can work in the worst case scenario, <laughs> oh, not really the worst, in the most intense case scenario, it should work in most scenarios. I guess when it comes to a Twitch extension, a large part of the game is, has been focused on the streaming aspect. Have you seen that translate into, I guess, more success? Has it taken off as a streaming game through those large streams of a lot of people interacting? Or do you think it has had an impact? I definitely think it's more of a streamer's game than not. I've seen streamers pick up the game and play it, and they're talking to their chat constantly, which I assume means it's a good streaming game, because as soon as you involve the community, the chat, it means that it's a game almost designed for Twitch in a sense. I, I I don't know how other Twitch games like Among Us work in that sense, but we have seen some success correlated with Twitch. Uh, looking at the graphs, I don't know the exact details, but it's definitely a bump. I'm glad to hear it's it's good that being innovative and putting in the extra effort works because. It's quite interesting to hear that you've done, you've pulled off something that hasn't really been tried or done before. Yeah, it's almost a gamble in a sense, because we only have two programmers at Twice Different, and I was practically solely working on that extension, while the other one was fixing bugs and such. And it, it was a big time sink to get the extension to work, and I think the payoff worked well. People are sharing the game, people are clipping moments uh, of funny creature drawings, for example. 
And the game has a replayability factor. So streamers come back and stream it more. And what I've noticed is there are YouTube videos and streams for Daily Dungeon in particular. Like, okay, we're going to do this day. Let's see if we can do it. All right, we did it. <laughs> and uh, it's nice to see people coming back and playing the game. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, that's what you... It sounds like the kind of game that could have quite a, a long tail, like, life in a sense where, you know, people play it for on and off or consistently for months, maybe even years, uh, which makes me a bit curious because I think, you know, gone are the days where a game is done when it ships, right? And the developers just don't have to think about it anymore. Um, what's... Do you, do you guys know, like, how long you're going to continue to i guess have to develop like bug fixes or new content for ring of pain is there like a plan for that or is it a bit more just dynamic based on what you see from your your fan base and and how they're playing it and you know that kind of stuff yeah so we've been pretty vocal on the fact that we the game will receive updates there will be more content there will be features and potentially well i would love to add more twitch features as well and you are correct, uh, it's not a game in the sense back in the 90s where you would release it on a cartridge and that's it, no updates, you can't do anything about it. But luckily we have the luxury of releasing the game on platforms that can update, like Steam or the Switch, and it means that while if you were to purchase the game now, it won't be the same experience as if you were to play it a few years on, it's a constantly updating game. Uh, that, that's how we see it, at least. Do you think that helps the indie development process? That there is that fact that oh, you can release a game in early access, for example, or you can release, you can do a full release of a game, but you can continue supporting it for six months, a year, multiple years. Whereas back in the day, it was that model of you had to make sure that the game was completely done. You had to make sure. You had to put as much effort as possible. There's a lot of crunch and those factors involved in it to make sure the game was done and then you moved on to a new game, whereas now there's this more, I guess there's a different environment where it is very much, well, you release a game and you can support it. You see, well, we just mentioned Among Us as a Twitch game. That's a game that came out two years ago and they recently cancelled the sequel so they can keep on supporting the original game. So it's very much a different landscape. And so do you think that helps developers in a way oh definitely especially for a small little indie company like us we're not a big triple a company and so we need as much support as possible to make content luckily we we had a good kickstart with uh film victoria which gave us a good grant and uh humble our publisher as well helped fund us as well and now we we, we released and get the game in a state that we're happy of and we believe it has legs to keep on going further into the future. When it comes to community feedback and the community in general, we want to keep on developing the game as long as the community is there, because there's no point in updating a game that no one's going to play in a sense, unless you want some sort of self-satisfaction. So having a game updatable in the future and adding more content not only keeps the game alive, but it keeps the community alive as well, especially for the people that really enjoy it. It's the similar to the Binding of Isaac, 
like that game released a long time ago and the team there have been releasing DLC updates every now and then. I think they released one semi-recently as well. And the community is still alive and playing that. So as long as there is a demand, I'm sure we'll continue updating the game. So, Mess, I don't know if you do listen to our fantastic podcast, Blowing Cartridges, but a couple of episodes ago, Zach and I discussed the topic of accessibility of games. And one of our many, well, we go on tangents, as you can tell, but one of the tangents we did go on was we discussed the the dynamics around difficulty in games and we cited Dark Souls as that sort of game that is designed for a hardcore experience and not necessarily accessible to a broader audience, but it lives and dies on the fact that you have a core base of hardcore gamers that love the experience and there's debates over whether if the developer, if From Software adds things like an easy mode to make it more accessible, that you have that other side of the fan base, they get quite vocal and quite upset that, oh, you're watering down our experience. And Ring of Pain is clearly a game that is designed around having a high difficulty level. It's a brutal game, and I think that's part of the... I might be wrong, but I think that's part of the appeal and part part of the intent. But from a development level, I don't know how much you can speak to it, but how do you weigh those two aspects of accessibility and difficulty in a optimal manner of you don't want to put people off, but you also want to create a challenge? What's interesting about that is before the game was released, it was pretty much only the developers and the community playing the game again and again. And over time, we just got better. So in our eyes, the game is easy, (laughs) in a sense. And it's interesting to get reviews and such and feedback of people saying, oh, the game is too hard. This keeps on happening to me. And, And we try to respond to them saying, oh, have you tried this? Have you tried that? Sort of like, the old Nintendo counseling days. <laughs> and <Brilliant>. yeah. <laughs> However, like we, we can't do that forever. I believe we'll be having many discussions now and in the future on how to make the game more accessible and more fair to viewers in ways that wouldn't ruin the game for the experienced people who want that difficult edge to it. And it's a very fine balance. I have a friend who has difficulty being the game but I also have another friend who finds it really easy. And yeah, it's it is a really fine line of trying to balance a game in one direction or not. And it, it's a very difficult thing to do. I'm not sure what we'll do in the future, but it's definitely something that we're looking at. Yeah, it's interesting because like, from what I've played of Ring of Pain, I'd say it's like an easy game to pick up and learn just how to operate it, if that makes sense. Like, yeah, the mechanics are simple in many ways. Yeah, exactly. So in that way, it's it's very accessible. But um, like a pretty much, well, I don't want to say all, but most rogue likes or rogue whites, there's almost that need for like it to be hard because you want people to like keep getting just a little bit further, a little bit further, a little bit further until eventually, you know, like you did the other day without cheats for the first time, mess actually <laughs> finish the game. But I can imagine there's also that challenge now of like, you don't want to water it down too much because you'll have people who beat it, you know, last week at that launch saying you've, you've cheapened the experience. You know, I used to, back in my day, I had to do this and that to beat Ring of Pain. Now these kids get like this fancy item that, you know, causes things to be way easier and blah, blah, blah. So 
it'll be interesting to see how you guys tackle that challenge going forward. Yeah, we have the advantage of having different game modes. I, I don't know you know about this yet because I don't believe either of you have finished the game. But once you finish it, it unlocks a hard mode, essentially. That sounds like a scary proposition. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, so we can definitely fine-tune the hard mode to make it more difficult or perhaps even add another hard mode. And we may perhaps make the base game more fair. Perhaps easier, I'm not too sure. But yeah, it's it's definitely polarizing having those two sides of the coin. What to do, what to do. And there are avenues to do it. Just trying to figure out the best way. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> it's like yeah, it's like the luck you need when you play Ring of Pain, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Get, getting cornered by exploders and enemies that shoot projectiles at you has given me nightmares over the last few days. I know, right? Uh, I played the game the other day with surround sound on, and I I didn't realize how basic the game was. But basically, my my speakers were going every time something bad happened. I was like, oh no! <laughs> <laughs> and it, yeah, it, it's very interesting because when I'm making when I'm developing the game, uh, I'm playing like a quick round just to see if a feature's working or not. And I play the game with the audio off because if if you listen to the same audio for your entire work life that's gonna drive you insane so i have other music playing in the background when i actually play the game on pc or on console it's like oh this this feels like a game right now it's like this sound there's interactivity it's very interesting <laughs> making a slight tangent but still on the development process how how's it been developing a game in 2020 with working from home especially in victoria has it impacted the development process that much and have you noticed a difference because i assume when you first started on the team that there was still some face-to-face contact because it was prior to covid or or did you join this year when covid was at its height uh, i joined last year uh just a bit before covid so I, I got some happy moments in with the uh the team in person as for when covid struck here in victoria uh we have pretty strict lockdowns and I believe since March this year, we've been working from home. And at first, it's all right. Yeah, working at home, we got our own PC rigs, we can hang out with our pets and all that. But eventually, we found out that it's very difficult to communicate with with each other and to be on the same level as each other, especially for a creative process like video game design. So, for example, we may be discussing a feature or something and we're all just typing in chat and as you know chat it's very difficult to get emotion or perhaps you might interpret a message with a different emotion mm-hmm. and it's not quite the same feeling as in voice so we're communicating in voice and even that is a bit polarizing because it's very easy for one person to talk over another or perhaps you want to demonstrate something on a piece of paper or on a whiteboard and you can't really do that. I really miss the whiteboard. The whiteboard was the best place. Just a huge <laughs> white screen. You can draw anything on it like Kobe or something or a game idea. And it'll get the point across much easier. And it, it, it is a bit tough. It's very tough. There's also the aspect of team bonding. A lot of that is lost because we would have lunch together. We would go for walks as a team. And that aspect is lost. We just 
sort of you sign out of our communication platform and come back later on. And recently we've been trying to rectify that a bit more with uh, game nights, in a sense. For example, just yesterday, I think, we played Jackbox 7, which just came out. And it's great to bring back the laughter in the team, just to have a good laugh, socialize a bit more, and to not talk about work stuff. Because, uh, yeah, I do believe that aspect has been lost along the way, especially with these COVID restrictions. So it'd be fair to say when the opportunity arises, you guys will likely return to to the office or wherever you know you were developing from? Ah, we would, except for the fact that we don't have an office anymore. So we used to have an office uh, here in Melbourne, obviously, and I think maybe about June or July... Uh, we were just like, why are we still paying for this? No one's no one's going in. And I think it was around the time when it heightened around Victoria, especially in my area. I, I believe there was a resurgence and my area became like super locked down, suburban lockdown. And I was like, I can't, <laughs> I can't come even if I wanted to. And yeah, we we gave the keys in one day. I had to mail in my keys. But we gave him the keys and we don't have an office anymore. So I don't know where our head office is now, technically. It might be Simon's house. <laughs> <laughs> so who knows? Maybe we'll all be chilling out at his house in the future. Uh, but yeah, I, I do believe that communication and working in person is key, especially for game development, as it is a, a creative process. So hopefully we can get back together and form some really cool creative decisions. It's not like we can do that now. It's just much easier to see everyone eye to eye and explain a feature or an idea. Yeah, no, that, I think I think a lot of people have probably learned that about themselves one way or the other, no matter what job they're doing. If um, they've gone from in-person to remote, it's, it's not quite, it's not the same, um, <laughs> no, no matter what way you cut it. So and I think it's interesting to hear that perspective because I think some people assume Oh, like game developers, they're just a bunch of nerds. They hate talking to people anyway, where it's like, no, no, it's not quite true. You know, we they do like to socialize and um and actually have in-person conversations because <laughs> it's just normal human um interaction that we, we all want and need. Yeah, we're all humans. Yeah, they aren't robots despite popular imagination. I know, I'm here right now. Hold on, I just need to change my oil. <laughs> oh man, such a ancient robots still running on fossil fuels (laughs) we are in melbourne (laughs) so what i question i have and this is probably moving a bit away from the development aspect but sort of continuing on unfortunately with the COVID aspect is you know melbourne i think has become known as a a bit of a hub of the game development and i guess you know you could say the indie development scene over the years thanks to we've got good funding here like film victoria which you mentioned uh we have a lot of events like pax and the melbourne international games week uh gcap which i don't know what that stands for but i know it's a <laughs> thing and thus there's a really what feels like as an out from an outsider's perspective but sees all these people on twitter and you know at panels and stuff at pax it feels like there's a pretty strong and tight knit community has that as someone who's now i guess shipped a game do you feel like you've you've sort of entered into that community or do you reckon covid's kind of made that not possible this year because you haven't been able to go to the in-person events that you probably would have otherwise 
Yeah, the the Australian scene is very interesting. Like we started off as I'm speaking as a as a whole. We started off as like porters and making games for movie adaptations and things like that. But then we had AAA companies like Team Bondi and 2K, but then eventually they left and the government stopped funding. But then eventually the indie scene emerged because I guess people got over it or the remnants of the developers got fed up. And we started getting games like Frosty Roads, Hollow Knight, and more recently Goose Game. And of course, Ring of Pain. <laughs> and yeah, and at the moment, I think we're getting more AAA behemoths like Sledgehammer Studios who made Call of Duty Advanced Warfare. So we're trending positively again, which is really exciting. And the indie scene is still very strong. It's it's very interesting because you would see a lot of people on Twitter talking all the time and I'd follow them and I'd, I'd be like, oh, you're a cool person. And then there were also a bunch of indie events in person, well, they used to be in person, and you would go and see these people and talk to them. And before, I just always felt like an outsider. And especially when I started, I still felt like an outsider because I just joined the job, I suppose. And now that I've released the game, I do feel like I'm part of that dev team. Like, I feel like I can go to these events and be like, haha, yes, game dev, I know what that's all about. <laughs> I've rode that rodeo before, but that hasn't happened quite yet. In regards to GCAP and PAX Australia, during that week, I think it's called International Games Week, it's not only a week for game enthusiasts like you guys, it's also a week for the devs as well such as GCAP, which is basically GDC, but here based in Australia. And there are a whole bunch of events that invite developers across Australia to come and hang out, essentially. Sort of like a after-party in a sense. And yeah, last year I heard about it, I was like, hmm, maybe one day I'll go. And earlier this year I was like, maybe I can go. And then last week I was like, oh, I can't go. <laughs> <laughs> but... Yeah, I do feel like I am part of that scene now, I suppose. Like, by default, yay! It just doesn't quite feel like it yet. Maybe when I get to see people face-to-face, -face, I'm like, oh, you're that person on Twitter. I'm this person on Twitter. <laughs> uh, the in-real-life Twitter meet-up Twitter convention Australia or something like that. Well, I guess it's a similar situation to when you and I met, Zach. We knew each other from a video game forum on the internet, but when you first meet someone, it's that moment of, oh, I vaguely know who you are. Yeah, we, we, we've we spoken in a way tangentially. Yeah, I reckon it'll be, I mean, I might be wrong, but the only difference is like, I feel like with Twitter, because you're following someone, it's kind of like, you learn a lot about them, but they prob might know nothing about you. <laughs> That'll just be an interesting dynamic. It's a bit of a one-way cipher, isn't it? You get a view of their life, but if they aren't following you or if they don't see your tweets as much as you see theirs, there's a difference in dynamics. Yeah, I don't quite post on Twitter as much as I, I guess, would like to, but I do definitely agree with that. Like, I know a lot about one type of person, but they know nothing about me because I don't really post a lot. So at least that opens up some aspect for a conversation. So we could talk about, hey, this is what I worked on, and blah, blah, blah. I bet you didn't know about this, because I never <laughs> talked about it. <laughs> uh, so I guess in a way that's good, but it would be interesting to become more of a Twitter personality and have two Twitter personalities talking to each other. 
Do you think it is a useful platform as a video game developer? Because I think among indie devs, there is this, I guess, fascination. Well, not fascination, but there's this use of Twitter as a platform to both reach out to consumers and potential consumers, but also to reach out to the dev community as a whole and people and I guess keep in touch with people you know and make new contacts. Do you think it's a key platform for an indie dev? Yeah, <laughs> quite simply. There are so many indie devs on Twitter. It's 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 really great. It's but it's almost daunting in a sense because you almost see the best of the best on Twitter. That's what gets liked the most. And it might downplay whatever you're working on in a sense. However, if you can manage to strike gold on Twitter, you might be pretty well off because you'll have a series of followers who will potentially like most things that you post, which could be the game when it releases. <laughs> but it's Twitter is a great platform. I, I really do like it. I I follow to a whole bunch of people that are more technical artisty, and I get to see whatever they're working on, and it'll be something that I've never seen before, or it's something that's cute and funny. And I'd follow people who do video game art. I'm like, oh, I wonder if I can implement this. It is a way to share what you've worked on, but there is that problem of communication. Twitter isn't a platform where you have to respond to absolutely everyone. It could be, but that's not really what it's designed for. It's more for showcasing a post that you have made and just putting it on a pedestal. Look at this, look at this. Uh, not that it's a bad thing. It's, it's, uh, it's really cool seeing the great content that's on Twitter. It's probably the most positive take I've had on Twitter in a while. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I drown out all of the political and all of the negative stuff on Twitter. I, I mostly focused on game dev stuff on Twitter. Every time I open up Twitter, it's usually game dev stuff. There's very little politics. You stay a sweet, pure boy, miss. Don't let that world come and taint you. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good it's a good side. I like what's the term uh, with the, the yellow tint glasses? Yeah, it's great. I'll keep them on. <laughs> While we are talking about Twitter, I do have one, and this might be the most important question of this entire podcast. Did the famous Twitter account, Can You Pet the Dog, inspire the petting dog mechanic in Ring of Pain, or is it just a, you happen to be on the same wavelength? Well, I'm glad to announce here that I was actually the one that implemented that feature. Wow. And that that was on my first day at Twice Different. It was on a list of things to do, and I'm like, I want to do that. I'm going to do it. <laughs> and then I implemented it, and I also decided the process for it, where you had to wear a, an item called the Hand of Dog. And back then, it just it didn't have a name. It was just, oh, you use a thing, and you pat the dog. And I was like, hmm, the hand of dogs. <laughs> it's a great pun. Yeah, obviously. It doesn't actually translate very well. I think I, I looked at the Japanese translation and I think it translates to dog's hand. So um, like a dog's paw. And I'm like, hmm, yeah, I guess the pun doesn't really get across localization. But yes, yeah, so I'm really glad that <laughs> the, uh, the Twitter Can You Pet The Dog posted about it. What they didn't post is if you keep on patting the dog, who knows what happens? You have to play the game and find out. 
Yeah, I, I pit him a bit, but maybe not enough. That's maybe my next goal <laughs> when I pick the game back up. <laughs> you got to just do it constantly. But make sure you kill the frogs, because those should all be killed. Why would you kill the frogs? To get those sweet, sweet souls. But the frogs are cute. You can, like, pat them and squish sweet, them. Sweet, sweet <laughs> souls, Ness. Sweet, sweet souls. Oh, it's sad. I love the frog. The frog has taken off on the Discord community. We have a channel called The Frog Zone, where people just post frogs. We have an emoji creation channel where people make new Discord reactions and emojis about the frogs. <laughs> we have um, a frog version of PogChamp called FrogChamp. <laughs> I think the yeah is going to be pretty jealous soon, all this frog love. I know. It, it's it's weird how the frog took off more than the owl in our scene. Uh, but definitely on Twitter, the owl is more of a focal point, I think. But if you go into the Discord, it's all about the frog. And the spoon. Oh, the, the best the item spoon. in the game. <laughs> the first time I got the spoon, I, I, I was just sort of clicking through and I equipped it. And then I realized, oh, the, the, the stats of this spoon isn't, aren't great. What, what have I done? It's so good. It makes me laugh every time. I see a streamer accidentally get the spoon or the community's like, get the spoon, get the spoon. <laughs> and then I read reviews like, why is the spoon in the game? Why would you ever pick this up? I just love it. <laughs> it's so great. I mean, clearly, you know, inspirational. I mean, it's it's probably why um, Hyrule Warriors, the new one, isn't a ladle, which is basically a spoon as their pre-order bonus, right? Because they saw, oh, people love spoons because in Ring of Pain, that's we got to we got to capitalize on this. Exactly. It's kind of a shame that they did did not give us royalties for using the spoon. <laughs> but what can you do? I'm sure your lawyers and Nintendo's lawyers will be in touch soon. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thanks, Mess, for coming on to talk to us about uh, Ring of Pain uh, and your, I guess, yeah, first soiree into professional game development. It's, again, really exciting to see the games out, and it's good, and to see, you know, what where what you're doing and what you're going to do next. If people want to, you know, follow you on Twitter, this, you know, platform we're just talking about, where would they find you to follow you and, and maybe, you know, the game and, and your development studio as well? Okay, well, on Twitter, my handle is underscore Fluto, because Fluto was taken, even though that's like my main handle. Bit of a shame there. But you can also follow Ring of Pain on Twitter as well. Ring of Pain is available on Steam, GOG, Switch, and is available for PC, Mac, and Switch. Buy it now! Whoa! (laughs) Yeah, available now. What are you waiting for? Just buy it. I don't know why you're not. Is at Ring of Pain the Twitter account for the game? I believe so. Let me just check. Scooby-dooby-doo. Yes, it is. I'm glad I'm not the only one that forgets Twitter accounts. <laughs> <laughs> so the handle is at Ring of Pain. And while you're following Ring of Pain, why not follow the creative director, Simon Boxer? That is at S Boxel. He posts some pretty fun stuff. I'm going to do that right now. It's just how easy it is. Why not? It's so easy. You just click a button. That, that's how Twitter works. I did it before the show, Zach. You're, you're too slow, as the great video game character once said. Yeah. No, clearly. Oh, wait. I'm already following him. This is Ooh. okay. I guess maybe I'm too. Maybe I'm more just forgetful than I am slow. <laughs> well, maybe maybe you could unfollow then follow again. <laughs> I'm not sure what that does to the algorithm, but maybe it works. <laughs> could be good. Um, speaking of, of algorithms and following things, we also have a Twitter 
at blowcartpod. Uh, I think I got that right, so I didn't lose the uh, ever, you know, continuous um, roguelike experience of hosting a podcast each week. Uh, so I got it, got it right on this front. Um, or if you want to follow me personally, you can follow me at Egorino or Brendan, you at Tamazoid. But maybe you don't use Twitter. Maybe you want to contact us some other way. You can email us at blowingcartridge at gmail.com. Or if you search for Blowing Cartridges podcast on Facebook, we should come up. Just look for the the logo that you hopefully see uh, on your podcasting app and uh, we'll be there. But Brendan, what's the other thing they can do if they really want to show that they are a hardcore, uh, dedicated, you know, want to go for the perfect run on the Blowing Cartridges roguelike podcast experience? Well, if you want to do a perfect run, if you want to get all the achievements, if you want to get platinum on PlayStation Live, even though we're not on PlayStation Live at this point, you need to go to Apple Podcast. And when you're on Apple Podcast, you really need to leave a review, leave a five-star review. Leave a written review. We've already have some fantastic written reviews on here. And just to read out the last one we got from Funboy Python on the 9th of September, he said that blowing cartridges is refreshing and fun. Finally, a podcast that discusses something in a fun and light way without mindless banter and chit chat. Just two guys discussing their genuine love of their hobby. So if you want to have your review read out on air, and you want to just talk about how great you are because you've left a review, which this person, Funboy Python, is a brilliant person, whoever they may be, go do it. Please leave a review. It really helps us. It helps us gain traction on podcast charts on Apple Podcasts, and it also gives us the satisfaction that people are actually listening to us talk about the things we love in video games. So thank you to everyone who has left a review, and thanks to all the people that keep on listening, and Make sure you bully your friends into listening to additional episodes. Funboy Python, your check is in the mail. Um, if it bounces, just hit me up on Twitter. <laughs> Alrighty, guys. Well, thank you. And thanks again, Mess, for joining us. It was really good to chat to you. Um, you know, maybe we'll have you on the podcast again some other day, either when another game comes out or just to talk about other things that, that aren't games that you're making. <laughs> Yeah, well, thank you for having me. It's glad to be here, and perhaps in the future as well. Uh, thanks for coming on, Mess, and thanks for listening, everyone. Until next episode, goodbye. Bye. Ring of pain. <laughs>